Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Nikki M. Taylor, author of the book Brooding Over Bloody Revenge, Enslaved Women's Lethal Resistance. Nikki, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Mark, for having me. It's quite an honor. Well, the honor is all ours. Thank you for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm from Ohio, and uh, I was educated in Pennsylvania and graduate stu- school at Duke. Um, that was an education that was uh, for history, correct? Yes. I, I All my degrees are in history, and I'm a I'm a, I'm a nerd. I, I don't, you know, really do much outside of history and reading history, watching documentaries. I have some other side interests, biking and things like that, but I, I'm a nerd. <laughs> well, as a fellow history nerd, I, I can certainly appreciate that. <laughs> so what led you to write a book about violent uh, resistance by enslaved women. Wow, that, that's a that's a great question to lead a thought here. Well, it's something that I always wondered about. the The consensus in the field of Black women's history is that Black women usually did covert or maybe more nonviolent resistance to slavery. It never struck me as being accurate, but I just didn't have the evidence and. The older I got and the more sophisticated I got in my career, I said, wait a minute, like, why are we still going with that same set piece? And I knew from one of my favorite books of all times, which is Melton McLaurin's Celia Slave, that that at least one Black woman had tried another form of resistance besides the covert covert, nonviolent brand. And so um, I decided to, to try to you know, challenge the consensus and also um, show that Black women also had uh, similar resistance to the likes of Gabriel Prosser or Prosser's Gabriel, uh, correction, and and others like him. It's uh, it's quite a challenge to undertake this book based upon what you wrote, because as you explained, the the records aren't there. I mean, we're we're used in our society today. We have, uh, you know, trial transcripts. We have, you know, we we watch trials on TV. As you explained, one of the challenges you faced, and, and, you know, I I can definitely appreciate this challenge, was was simply in finding the the, the evidence of these cases, the, 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 the information. So even though these are legal proceedings, as you explained, perhaps one of the reasons why we don't have, we, we have this misconception about uh, violent resistance is the fact that the records are, are, are so sparse. Exactly. And, 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 you know, I have to admit, Mark, that I had to be educated about legal documents and trial proceedings. It's not something that I have traditionally worked with in my career and my other three books. And so for me, it was a shock that there were so many trial records uh, extant uh, remaining that were available and that they had been addressed by a few scholars, but not really in a full-throated, full-body way. But I found these records in places like uh, the Court of Oyer and Terminator, which I had never really heard of. And I said, oh my God, what what is this court? And then I found them in slave court records, uh, criminal court records. And 
And, and so it, it was just um, very shocking that they've been there all along, but we just haven't had a deep dive into those records looking for these things. There were a few scholars early on that compiled data databases like the SB file, um, but nobody really, you know, teased out the women out of those databases to be able to write a book about them. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on the significance of the use of violence by enslaved women and 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 how that and and the and how that really contradicts the the image that we have of you know women's in, in, in sort of their in more or a more passive uh role or more passive resistance to, to slave uh to, to their condition and also why it is that we we've had that image for so long was it just simply a matter of these cases having been forgotten was there uh, an effort to maybe deliberately perpetuate this image. Why is it that that this book is the revelation about the about violent resistance that it is? That's a great question. I think because violence historically and actually, and even currently in American society has been the preserve of men, particularly white men have historically had more of a license to commit violence on all manner of groups of people in American society. People um, are not accustomed to women committing violence, and especially Black women. And so, uh, you know, in fact, I say in my book at one point, I I'm not at all saying that Black women are violent. This book is not to try to say, oh, yeah, Black women are violent. But it's, I still insist that Black women were the least violent people in the slave era, the least violent people. But nonetheless, uh, we have a genteel notion and it's some of it is uh 19th century notions of what women ought to say and do and how women ought to be portrayed we have this idea that they just did a softer type of uh resistance uh, they just spit in food they talked back uh, sometimes they rolled their eyes or they had a bad attitude but that's it and so generation after generation of historians of Black women's history have perpetuated that. We've just accepted that. And a lot of it is, you know, maybe on some level, we it, it was like, uh, you know, a moral high ground, you know, on some level, um, you know, maybe we were, you know, more moral than other people in American society at the time. But it's not at all true to the history and we can't be honest with the history by perpetuating a different type of stereotype, right? The genteel, soft-spoken Black woman that does not do anything violent and does not wage any violent resistance to slavery. And so that's what I had to grapple with as a scholar, as a Black woman. How do I present this history, which is challenging the field, and also putting something out there that maybe some people probably might not be ready to accept about American history and specifically about enslaved women's history. It's a especially surprising omission to me because when, when you, and this is one of the things I took from reading uh, the cases that you highlighted, which was how for enslaved women in in one respect, they had so much of a greater opportunity for violence, given the fact that uh, it, it, the the the, uh, the cases you describe are, are predominantly uh, household uh, cases. Uh, these these are women who are enslaved and 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 doing household work. So the opportunities 
for the type of violence where 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 uh, they're they're you know their victims are you know have let their guard down. They're they're in a more intimate. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of uh, the case involving Phyllis and Phoebe, where yeah, because they're it, it, they're they're you know they're 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 feeding uh uh. Uh, the 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 captain they're they're and so they they have this opportunity to uh you know use this very uh you know intimate form of 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 of, of uh murder to uh right. to kill him and and in effect the the, the their their victim is is is, is in willingly ingesting unknowingly but willingly in ingesting the very form of 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 his death exactly and and that's the thing too we often think of slave revolt and slave resistance is something that's being planned and organized in the field among uh, field slaves. And so this book kind of challenges that uh, in a more profound way than maybe, you know, some of the others in that, you know, not only are these uh, maybe smaller revolts, if you will, happening inside the household, but they're being planned by perhaps the most favored of the enslaved people, the, the house workers. And so it, it's just shocking, but it really gives you a sense, Mark, of how unsafe slaveholders were, uh, how unstable the system was that, you know, at any point, if they closed their eyes or every morsel of food they ate, every time they closed their eyes at night, no telling what could happen to them because they were uh, you know, they had these enslaved workers in their households, and not all of them were happy uh, with what that had been done to them. And most of them were not happy, you know, but uh, some of them were willing to go to greater lengths to to, to demonstrate their unhappiness. It, it strikes me as, as I, I find myself wondering uh, about whether or not that was perhaps a reason why these didn't receive quite as much, uh, you know, maybe that was a, a limiting factor in the publicity because, I think the last thing you know, uh, you know, whites wanted was for this idea, and this goes to how you know th this assumption that you s so often see in, in slavery, which is that you know enslaved people can't have you know thoughts of rebellion or murder unless somehow they're inspired to do so by external forces, and, and how this idea. Well, if you don't talk about it, maybe this idea won't occur to them that we're especially vulnerable when we're being put to bed or when we're sleeping or when we're being fed. And yet, obviously, and whether or not that might have been why it didn't receive the attention of, say, a more, you know, be a much more public and and, and more more visible slave rebellion or or, or more visible act of, of of violence by men. Absolutely, Mark. You just put your finger on the the actual truth of what happened, and in fact, those cases were more difficult to document and to find evidence for outside of the court records. And what I mean by that, they weren't really documented in the local newspapers or even the more regional newspapers. And I, I, I just found that unsettling. And I go to another city and I look for the story. And what I saw was a conspiracy of silence among the newspapers in, in the South and, you know, in these slave societies, because it would shake the very foundations of the system to know that they're very... Um, you know, the, the, the enslaved people they trusted the most were the ones who were plotting against them um, for weeks, for hours, for days, for weeks, for years, plotting against their their very lives. Now, you don't simply present these cases as as uh, as, as standalone cases. You discuss them within the framework 
of black fem the black feminist practice of justice. And, and I, I must confess, this was something that was new to me. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit on what this is and how it shaped your presentation of the cases in your book. Thank you. So my daughter came to me, she's an adult, and she read, you know, some of the stories and listened to me. And she says, Mom, I'm I'm a little worried that you're going to perpetuate the ages old stereotype of the angry black woman. If you tell these stories just as they happen. And I thought about it and I said, you're right. And I, and so I said, you know, as a black feminist, I will have to frame this in a way that these stories do not end up doing that. And so I had to be very careful with how I frame these. So I frame these within a theory called black feminist theory. And it doesn't mean that I'm insisting that these enslaved women were black feminists. They were not. They were not feminists. It's mainly me that's the feminist. But black feminist theory allows us to center their voices. That's the very uh, heart of what that theory does. It allows us to center their voices, their experiences, their words. And so once I did that, I was able to see that these these are not just impulsive angry, enraged women. These are women who were thinking very thoughtfully about these actions for a very long time. These were organized plots where they thought about the reasons they had a philosophy of justice, and they felt that their enslavers had violated uh, the, the justice code in their minds. And again, their view of justice was very different than the larger mainstream society but they held on to their view of justice. So I said, these women are intellectuals because they have their own theory of what justice means. And it has no relationship to what larger mainstream society uh, believed, but they didn't care. And not only that, they're they're carefully planning these, these plots. They're organizing them. They're looking for safe, fail safes in their plots to make sure that everything goes right. They're handpicking their accomplices. They're ensuring their accomplices are loyal to the cause, and they're selecting the time and de of death, the weapon to be used, and even more shockingly, Mark, they concocted these elaborate stories to try to evade detection, and that I wasn't prepared for. I mean, they're very complex stories of in in order to you know escape suspicion. And so for that, I, I, I began to really realize and appreciate the intellectual work that had gone into these plots. And uh, they were all successful plots. And I began to see that um, the, the men's plots that we know so much more about, Nat Turner, Gabriel's plot, uh, Denmark Vesey, and others, we know more about them, their name recognizable. But they, these women's plots were more effective. They were all very successful. They were not betrayed ahead of time. And so I said, wow, what if this, what if what they've done is probably proven to all of us that they were the more effective at planning revolt? And so, so that's why this theory is important. You wouldn't have those types of thoughts or understandings unless you frame this within Black feminist theory. That's how you get it, that otherwise you just tell straight history and you hear the facts. This is what happened. This is what the person said to the other. And it's not at all complex. 
or sophisticated, and it's not at all thoughtful, and it doesn't center these women's perspectives and their stories. And the beautiful thing about these stories that of all of um, the history of slavery, it's very hard to get at the voices of Black women. We've tried in other areas to talk about family life and how they raise their children. But in this case, they are very vocal and their their words have stood the test of time. They're right there in the historic record, the historical record. And, and it's jarring some of the things that they said, the things that they say about justice, the things that they say about revenge. And so that's why that theory was helpful to, to, to help the readers. And, and in, in fact, to help me be able to really, you know, understand, appreciate and respect what it is they were really planning. Now, you're not you're in your book. You don't just talk about the the murders themselves. You also talk about the uh, the case, the trials, the investigations that that ultimately give us this information. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about the legal conditions that uh, enslaved women uh, faced. Uh, and, and here uh, we're not just talking about, you know, in these individual cases, but the, these also give us a window into what enslaved women would face normally when they were accused of crimes. What, what, what sort of, uh, you know, opportunities did they did they have to to present uh, a defense? Uh, what sort of w- in what way would they would it have been different had uh, they not been black? I mean, what what, what was different for them in, in general, and, and and did this change over time? Yeah, well, first of all, that's a really great question. I had to place all of these women and their specific legal context. And what I learned from that is that in every colony or state, there was a different legal context. And then across time, there were different legal contexts. And I wasn't prepared for this idea that there were so many different legal systems and judicial systems within the United States. And so what happened, for the most part, I'll just generalize, when women were uh, enslaved women were suspected of crimes, there were two justice or two judicial systems. Enslaved people had their own system uh, through slave courts, or sometimes they were tried through criminal courts or courts of lawyer and de- and, and terminar, which stands for here and determ- determine. It's an old carryover from the English system, and um, they had a separate system. They were usually tried, their their cases were not tried by juries, as was the case with normal U.S. citizens. They were tried by slave owners and sometimes even just, justices of the peace. And most of the times, those people were slave owners. So you had this system in which you're not given a trial by jury, but instead the justices are hearing your case and they're all slave owners. And so that was incredibly daunting. In addition, they were not allowed to testify in their own trials, which in and of itself is not that surprising. Not Nobody was at that time in America. But they were also not allowed to, that Black people couldn't be a witness in their trial. So if they had a friend, say, that was with them, and, you know, could testify about their whereabouts, that person wouldn't be allowed to testify especially against a white person, and sometimes at all, depending on the, the, the location. 
Uh, they were sometimes in some places they were given defense attorneys, but oftentimes not. But the defense attorneys were not often uh, really putting on a real defense uh, where they're going to bring a counter argument or a counter case. Um, and so it was just really a, a burlesque in a lot of ways. Uh, in addition to that, sometimes their trials were held. Their trials and executions were held within a week, a few days, sometimes all on the same day. So their trial and their execution could be on the same day. And so that we all now recognize that as a egregious miscarriage of justice. But, you know, back then, nobody was really advocating for enslaved people's uh, judicial rights. In addition to that, they oftentimes, especially in the older uh, eastern states like Virginia, wouldn't have an opportunity for an appeal. In a newer states like Texas, they could go through an appeal systems, but oftentimes the appellate uh, justices uh, were also slaveholders by mandate. And so it was just a corrupt system from the start to the finish. And so they had to grapple with that. And it was an opportunity for, um, you know, really for them to just, I don't know, just get their voices out maybe, um, you know, in the questioning, in the investigation stages where a lot of times their testimony would be present, not in the trial proceedings per se. But, um, you know, I just learned a lot about how the justice system uh, was laid out in those early years and why now uh, a lot of the same things persist, uh, including, you know, uh, you know, not a lot of representation of African-Americans on many juries across America. So that was sad to me not to see much change across time in ter as it relates to juries um, and, and, and then the hardiness of defense, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the defense of, of a, of a um, accused person. And so all of that was what they were up against and more in the book, but uh, it was a daunting thing. And, and the executions themselves were also very horrific. Uh, enslaved women were more likely than uh, white women. We have this uh, uh, false understanding in America that the Salem witches were uh, burned at the stake, and that is wrong. They were not burned at the stake, but... The, the highest number of women burned at the stake in that era, in the slave era, were Black women who were burned at the stake for, you know, these types of crimes and even for lesser crimes. And so that was uh, what happened to most of the women in the book. They were burned at the stake, burned alive uh, for their crimes. Now, you focus in particular on seven cases. And I was wondering yeah. if you could maybe choose one of those cases and, and, and describe in a bit more detail so that we might get a sense as to uh, uh, what, we've, what we've been talking about generally, but also how it is that you use these cases both to uh, d d talk about the, the, the question of, of the of violence uh, undertaken by enslaved women, but also how you uh, use the, the materials to, to sort of illuminate more broadly. I, that's one of the things I found most fascinating was how you present the case. But then you also use it to talk more generally about uh, a lot of these issues. So each one becomes, in a sense, a window to a broader aspect of the topic. And I was wondering if you could choose a case in particular you think is particularly illustrative or perhaps a, a particular uh, favorite of yours to, to talk about uh, how, how this works in the book. Yeah, uh, well, 
I guess the easiest one to talk about would be Nellie, who was a 60-year-old enslaved matriarch who was actually fortunate enough to have been uh, enslaved with her entire family, which is unusual at that time, in that moment, the, the, the 1850s in American history. By that time, most people in Virginia had already been separated from their children. So she lived on a farm in Virginia with her uh, daughter and her grandchildren. And their owner, uh, a man by the name of Green, was particularly uh, harsh. He was known to shoot a gun on the sidewalk if he heard noises at night to basically keep his enslaved people on the property. He did not believe in giving them time off. He didn't believe in giving them Christmas holidays, which was the only time of the year that enslaved people got quote, time off, if you know, where they could have revelry, uh, celebrate the holidays, and actually get a vacation from the perpetual workload. And so he decided he didn't want to give his enslaved people a workload, uh, I'm sorry, time off. And they thought that was egregious not to have Christmas holidays off. And so they decided to, to kill him. And um, they got together one night, went to his house, and uh, the children had a role, the daughter had a role and the matriarch Nellie had a role and they ended up uh, killing him they bludgeoned him with all manners of you know instruments uh, from an axe to pickets of offense and they finally killed him and when they did they decided to burn his body and by the time the uh, whites in the neighborhood were alerted they came over to the property and they find that um you know, it was a mystery, but soon it became clear that it might be his own enslaved people. And so they form a, a coroner's inquest, which is common at the time, where the coroner has to, the investigative powers were not from a police detective like we have now, but the coroner was given those rights and authorities back then. So he forms this inquest and he's investigating, and that's when they all start admitting. And it's so rich. Their testimonies in these in this coroner's inquest is just so rich, and it's it also paints a, a you know a picture of how horrific their lives were under this man and how brutal he was, how unrelenting he was, how unending the work cycles were. Because not only were they house slaves, they were also field slaves. So they did farming and they also cooked and cleaned. And they never got any time off. They never got to go to parties in the neighborhood that other enslaved people got to go to. And so in their mind, he had to die. So I take the reader through all of that, um, including what kind of person he was. And, you know, and, and so it ends up with uh, Nellie being executed, her and her daughter and some of the older grand grandchildren. And um, in that case, is representative of all the legal challenges that enslaved people had to face, the coroner's inquest, how the whites in the neighborhood got prejudiced against the, the Nellie and her kin because, you know, they were just disgusted with, with what they had done. And um, I think that case, more than any others, is representative of the types of things I talk about in, in the book. And it's also representative of the theory that we talked about earlier. It also, for me, had certain echoes with what you sometimes see, unfortunately, in the news today, where acts of, of you know resistance, where where you have uh, you know black men defending themselves, 
oftentimes are you know, become the subject of punishment, whereas their their response, you know, what's done as response to uh, say violence being done towards them or mistreatment done towards them, that that sort of gets you know ignored or 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 is not you know taken into consideration in terms of that punishment. That ultimately it's about making sure that the the, the black woman committing the violence is 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 the subject and not the the conditions which brought her to an ex- or in this case the, this this group to to this extraordinary uh, recourse to to try to alleviate this miserable situation. Exactly. And the thing that makes that one maybe different, Mark, is the fact that there were underage children that were sentenced to death. And so now we, of course, would think that that was abhorrent. We don't sentence children to die. But back then, you know, people thought it was perfectly normal. And there were letters written to the Virginia governor endorsing this idea that these teenagers, they were preteen should be sentenced to die because the girl, Ellen, they said was built like a woman. And therefore, of course, she should, you know, be faced punishments like a woman. I'm paraphrasing. And so it it was heartbreaking on that level that even in that, she was not looked at as a child. And, um, you know, as a child that may have just been, you know, answering the orders of her mother and grandmother, right? And so... That part of it was very heartbreaking. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us about this very important book. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Thank you. I'm working on a project, a Civil War project, a woman by the name of Amy Spain, who was a Black woman who was uh, executed by the Confederate Army. And I'm in the beginning stages of it. I'm trying to find out her story and why that happened to her in South Carolina. And... um you know, just all the circumstances surrounding that. So I don't have much more than that, but it piqued my interest because, of course, it's a little consistent with some of the things I've done in the past. Yeah, it, it sounds like a natural outgrowth of the work that you were doing here. They you know how yeah. you know black women are being treated by white legal systems. I, yeah. I, I look for I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Likewise, bye bye.